If you're new to Sojourn, uh, we follow something called the church calendar around here, uh, that for centuries the church has divided the year into, uh, into seasons, uh, seasons where you would focus on different aspects of the life of Christ. It's, um, it's one of the ways that we desire to, to worship and live a historically rich life. And so you may have heard of the season called Advent. Uh, Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas where you uh, remember and you celebrate the, the, the coming of Christ, his first Advent. And then from Advent, we go into a season that we call Epiphany. Uh, the church has called Epiphany where you um, remember the appearing of Christ. And so during this season, we've been looking at the, the Gospel of Matthew where we have taken some passages about the coming of Christ during Advent. And now we've uh, moved into looking at more of the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ. And today, uh, we've isolated a text out of Matthew 10 uh, that is one of Jesus' more controversial or at least uncomfortable statements. At the church that I came from, uh, we used to call passages like this a space maker, right? You, you preach this, you take this seriously, what Jesus said, and you're going to create some empty seats in your sanctuary. And so we thought, why not? Let's do it. So let's get started. Uh, my, um, or in all of us, uh, there is uh, a functional order to our loves uh, that, that uh, identifying what I love most is just hardwired into us from the beginning. And so I, uh, I have a seven-year-old daughter who asked me the other day, uh, a couple days ago, two days ago, three days ago, she, she was sitting in the kitchen, she, she was holding her little doggy, uh, and, and she said, hey, daddy, let me ask you a question. Who do you love more, me or Henry? Now, Henry's our dog. Our dog is for sale right now. And so if you're willing to pay over market value, I've got a cute little pup for you, okay? I'm not kidding about that. It, I'm not supposed to sell my dog right now, but he is for sale. Um, and so I said, of course, sweetie, you. Uh, and then I gambled, and I said, Isaac, who do you love more, daddy or Henry? And she looked at me and said, I don't know. I have to think about that. Uh, uh, so I cried. It was um, uh, called Dodds. I set up a counseling session. We got together. Uh, but then you grow up, and it goes from uh, doggy to you start dating, and, uh, and you long for this day where you would look some in the eye, or they would look you in the eye, and they would say, I love you. And, uh, and then the hope is, uh, in all of us, that, that that would blossom into engagements and then marriage at one day. Um, and what we long for is that there would be a new order to somebody else's love, so that they're their love for us, my love for them, would reorder my life, and every other love would become secondary to this new love that I have in my life. So here's what our text is going to say today. Uh, our, our text is going to say that when you encounter Jesus, when, when he encounters you, when your life collides with him, when your story meets the story of Christ, he reorders your loves, and he gives us one of the most radical calls to what it means to be one of his followers in Matthew 10. So let's go. Verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, this is, uh, this is uh, a strange little text, is it, um, is it not? Right. If you're reading through Matthew, here, here's what makes this strange. Uh, the the, the famous Sermon on the Mount, in the middle of that, not in the middle of it, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, do we not find blessed are the peacemakers? Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, and so we've just traced our way through Matthew. We read blessed are the peacemakers. Um, and then we read Jesus saying, uh, hey, I, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, okay? 
Um, you know what else you're going to find if you trace your way through Matthew? You're going to find Matthew just committed to showing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the, the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah that Israel, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that comes before Jesus, had always longed for and wanted. And at the heart of Isaiah, um, which Matthew records and cites um, often, you, you'll find Isaiah repeatedly references to him and ex, uh, explicit. Um, at the heart of Isaiah's prophecy about the, the Messiah is Isaiah 9-6 that says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So put yourself in the shoes of someone listening to Jesus, right? You're following along, you're, you're listening to him, you're watching his life, um, and here you... You, you hear him say, I, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and you're, you're thinking, but, but wait a minute, like I, our Messiah, our Savior, the, 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 the Savior we've been waiting for is the Prince of Peace, and, and we've been thinking that you're the one we've been waiting for, but now you're saying you didn't come to bring peace, you came to bring a sword, and Jesus doesn't stop there, he goes farther because by sword he means I came to divide, I came to bring division. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? Let's keep reading. For I have come to set mother, to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies shall be those of his own household. Okay, straight talk. Straight talk to my sojourn crew here. We don't have a grid for what Jesus is talking about, most of us. Most of us don't have uh, even the beginning workings of a fundamental grid to figure out and understand and feel the weight of. We might be able to understand, I shouldn't say it that way, but to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying here. Most of us don't have a grid for it. And the reason most of us don't have a grid for it is that most of us, not all of us, I know this is not true for everybody, but most of us, um, we, we either grew up in Christian homes or uh, we grew up in homes that were affected and shaped and influenced by Christian ethics and Christian values. And so when we became a Christian, it was either celebrated um, or it was at least accepted and appreciated. So, for example, when I became a Christian, I was 22. I'm 39 now. That feels hard. That's hard to say right there. I'm 39. Uh, but I was, that means I'm less than a year from 40. Um, I know y'all know that already. But, uh, but I became a Christian. I was 22, and I had these, um, these, 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 my, my boys, right, we've been friends from high school, college, they were my bar hopping buddies, and, um, and I couldn't wait to tell them that I'd become a Christian, and so I, I went and I told them, and true story, one of them slammed the door, cussed at me, one of them um, assumed that I had a change of sexual orientation, uh, and then the rest of them just said, we're done with this dude, dropped him. And so my friends were like, okay, this is, this is no go, man, you're, you're out. But my family was a bit different. My family, nobody was a Christian, uh, and, and so they, they immediately thought, well, uh, Brandon has kind of quickly become a, a pretty pretty weird religious dude. Um, that was the language. Uh, you can't talk to him anymore. That was also something said, very hurtful. Uh, I, I meet with Dodds about that still. And but at the same time, they thought, hey, this is this is good though. Like this is good. Like maybe Brandon won't do the same things he used to do. At least at least at least he's going to be a different guy. At least we don't have to worry about him. Um, doing something crazy at 3 in the morning and us getting a phone call at 5. Right? This, is, this might be a good thing. 
And so I know um, that that was probably a bit of a story for a lot of us, but if you were, if you were following Jesus and Jesus' day here, uh, your family would not have seen your conversion of following Jesus as anything other than an outright and complete and total rejection of all that your family stood for. And so I know, again, some of us have tasted that also. Right? Some of us grew up in uh, religious families from uh, Catholic to um, other religions, Mormon maybe, uh, atheistic backgrounds. And when we um, decided we're going to follow Jesus now, that, that was responded to by our families as a complete rejection of all that our family uh, stood for, had taught, had trained into us. And so we've tasted a bit of this. Um, but I think to actually um, feel the, the full weight of what Jesus is saying, we, we probably have to get out of our Western culture. Um, because in the context, he's talking about the persecution that would come to believers. And if you roll back to verse 21, it's going to talk about a family member putting another family member to death. And so a couple of years ago, I was, uh, at a, I was in Dubai. I was with some friends over there. And uh, they, they were telling me the story about, uh, about this girl who was from a neighboring country who had, who, who had become a Christian, um, who would then go to the Dubai Mall uh, because I've got to go shopping uh, but, but which the Dubai Ball is incredible. Like, you should fly over there, go shopping, go skiing on the indoor ski slope. It's incredible. Uh, it's expensive if you go just for that. But, um, and they were telling this story about this 16-year-old girl who'd become a Christian who would go to the mall to meet a lady in their church for discipleship. And the way they did discipleship to try to hide it um, is they would meet on benches, sit facing away from one another in the center of the mall, and they would talk about the Gospels. And then her dad found out that she had become a Christian. And then she killed his daughter. And then when um, the authorities showed up, they removed the body and said to the dad, you did what you were supposed to do. What Jesus is saying here was not confusing for her. It is not confusing for her. There is a division that comes uh, to families. There's more going on here. There's more going on that Matthew, in quoting uh, and citing uh, Jesus the way he does, he's also referencing back to Micah 7, 6. Micah 7, 6 says, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. So why, uh, why is Matthew uh, in this really weighty, really uncomfortable, really controversial to other context statement? Why is he so narrowly citing and referencing back to Micah 7? Um, R.T. France, theologian, commentator, said this, that Micah 7, 6 was implicitly echoed in Jesus' prediction of family division in verse 21. Here, the allusion becomes explicit. Micah spoke of the threatening situation in his own day. But the passage was commonly understood in Jewish interpretation to refer to the woes of the Messianic age. That's the time after the Messiah would come. And so he's, he's saying, hey, listen, um, because you're seeing this, don't, don't question Jesus as the Messiah. This is evidence um, that the Prince of Peace um, has come, uh, that, that there would be division in this Messianic age. And so when we take Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah, we bring them together with Matthew 10. Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that, yes, Jesus comes and he collides with your life and he creates a vertical peace between you and God, but that vertical peace between you and God leads to a horizontal division with even your most intimate relationships in 
this life. And it leads to a division from even those who you are meant to love most, who are most meant to love you. Why? Because of what comes next, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so let's, let's start with what Jesus is not saying. He is not saying that you should not love your father, mother, son, or daughter. He is saying that there is to be an order to your loves and that all earthly love is to be secondary to mine. Or to put it this way, your love for me, um, all horizontal love is meant to be secondary to vertical love. All. All. And if it doesn't, what happens is you cheapen the vertical relationship and you're going to destroy the horizontal relationships. And so let me, uh, let me illustrate the necessity of order using a couple of horizontal, staying in context, talk family. Uh, I, I love my kids. Um, I, I understand now why every parent thinks their kids are the best athlete and the smartest. Like, I remember the first time we were driving in our, our minivan. Um, we have a minivan. And, uh, and I said, hey, kids, what's four plus two? And one of them was like, are we allowed to use our fingers? And I was like, our kids know how to use their fingers. This is like, who knows how to do that at six? Like, of course, they're brilliant. They can use fingers. And I look at them day in and day out, often annoyingly, and I look them in the eye and I just say, Daddy loves you. You know why? You know why? Because I do. Do you know what I have to do for Daddy to love you? Nothing. Daddy loves you. I would die for you in a heartbeat. I don't, I don't always say that to them, but I, I, I say I love you. But here's the deal. Um, as much as I love my kids, my wife is my first love. There is order to my loves. My wife is to be my first love. And I'm a father of four now. I know how difficult it is to keep order, order. But she's the apple of my eye. And it's a fight to keep the order, but if I don't keep the order, it will destroy my marriage. How, how, uh, how, many, how, many times, how many times have you ever heard, or maybe I can, I'm, this is an illustration off the cuff, I may regret this in three minutes, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, have you ever heard this? Um, a 23-year-old who looks back at their, their childhood and goes, you know what? You know what I hated about my dad? He just loved my mom too much. Like, I felt so forgotten because he loved my mom too much. But, but you, know, uh, you know what I hear all the time? I hear um, husbands and wives who say, I, I have spent 15 years feeling forgotten in my home because my kids took over my spouse's life. There's an order to our loves. One flourishes families. One destroys them, undercuts them. Jesus is saying there's an order to your love. Horizontal, no, no, vertical first, horizontal second. Following Jesus means reordering your loves, but not just horizontal. Now he goes internal. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, the, the phrase, take up your cross, take up his cross and follow me, th this is, um, to, to shoot straight, just a phrase that we have utterly neutered in the West of all of its weight and power and authority, um, that taking up your cross, cross was, um, uh, cross was capital punishment in Rome. It was what you did to criminals and foreigners and um, 
slaves even. And so when Jesus is saying, um, take up your cross and follow me, he is inviting you to come and be willing to die for him. He, he is not simply saying what we have done in the West, because, and understandably, it's, it's, it's not anybody's fault that we don't have a grid for this. Um, in a lot of ways, to be honest, it's God's grace that the church at one point was so flourishing here that, um, that Christianity had such an influence on on our culture and our lives, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but the reality is we don't have a great grid for it. So what happens is take up your cross means I've got to put to death all the things that are sinful in my life, which is absolutely true. Like that's in there and it's true. It's just a fraction of what Jesus means by take up your cross. It is a true statement, but it is not the sum total of what Jesus is after when he says, take up your cross and follow me. I want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. This is a radical, radical call. And I, I think that we might be able to paraphrase Jesus like this. If you want to live for me, it means you have to be willing to die for me. If you want to live for me, you have to be able to, to die for me, willing to die for me. See, Jesus did not. He did not simply come, live, and die on the cross to make pretty lives prettier. He came to create disciples that were willing to forsake it all for the sake of his name. And if I could uh, throw out one of, my, one of my fears, I have a lot of fears, one of my fears for us as a community is the, the fear of affluence. That our lives would be so good and so um, beautiful that the thought of taking Jesus seriously here would become utterly foreign to us. Or more honestly, it already is utterly foreign to us. Take up your cross and folly? Are you kidding me? Have you, have you seen my life? Like, have you seen my house? Jesus, certainly, if you knew what kind of house I had, you wouldn't call me to this kind of sacrificial living. Like, if you just knew what my job was, you, you would know that what you're saying right here doesn't really apply to me. If you knew my dreams, you would know this doesn't really apply to me. Take up your cross and follow me. It's an invitation to be willing to give our lives for what we love most. And if I'm honest, I pray that none of us are forced to choose. But if we are, Jesus' call here is to be willing to say, you are what I love most, even over my own life. And this is this is not Jesus asking you to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And to be the people of Jesus, it means following in the footsteps of Jesus, and the footsteps of Jesus led him to look you in the eye, call you a friend that he was willing to go to the cross and die for. which takes us to verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now this is a coffee cup verse, is it not? Like we put it on our coffee cups, we um, drink our $7 mugs from somewhere, and we talk about I'm willing to lose my life. I'll drink McDonald's coffee if I have to. That's losing my life. It is anything but a coffee cup verse. R.T. France again 
after the mention, this is, this is what he says. This is his interpretation of what's happening here in light of the context. After the mention of the cross in verse 38 and the prediction of execution in verse 21, it seems clear that the reference to losing life is to be taken literally. Though, of course, as with taking up the cross, the principle can be extended to suffering. So if France is right here, this is what it's saying. It's saying that some, some of my followers are going to lose their life, but if you lose your life for my sake, you're not going to lose your life, that you will not lose. There's nothing that you could possibly suffer through or lose in this life that you don't get a, back a thousandfold in Christ. Nothing, nothing. An example, an example in light of the context, if we just kept reading through Matthew, we just continued on from Matthew 10. We see here Jesus divides families, but then we hit verse chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus talking about this is what's to come in the new world. He said to them, truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And here it is. And everyone who has left house or brother or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This is why. This is why. When we talk at Sojourn uh, about, when we say things like this, we're not trying to feel like a family. We're trying to be a family because church as family is a foretaste of the eternal family that's waiting for us. Does it mean biological family is unimportant? Are you kidding me? Of course it's not what it means. It is God's glorious grace to some of you that you got to grow up and you got to experience the best of both worlds, redeemed biological family and now living in a redeemed spiritual family. I, I am praying and I'm asking that that is the story of my kids. I want that story, but for some of us who didn't, for some of us who, who grew up in these broken homes with uh, divorce when they were four, my earliest childhood memory is the day that my dad left. For some of us, for some of us, church is family the way it's meant to be. With all of our fighting and all of our disagreements, all of our, you offended me, and all of our, I'm left wing, I'm right wing, how are we going to get along? For all of that, it's family the way that it's meant to be. And it's meant to be a foretaste of the family that is to come. And if Jesus divides you from your most intimate relationships in your family, there's nothing that you're not going to get back a hundredfold. There's nothing you suffer through or lose in Christ that you don't get back a hundredfold in the world that is to come, that you don't get to have a foretaste of right now. Which, side note, side note, you want to know you you know why we multiply parishes? You want to know why these little communities that meet in houses? Why we say like we are we are not going to stop until our map is blanketed with pins that represent these new little communities trying to live out church as family. You want to know why tonight my parish is doing our multiplication party where we celebrate the birth of a new neighborhood parish? It's because we're creating room for our neighbors who need to know the family that Jesus creates so they might know the God who came to rescue them. That, that's, why. that's why. So that we can create room for men and women um, who are in desperate need of knowing the family that's available them in, for them in Christ. 
It's not simply so we can go deeper with fewer. That might be a benefit. But it's so that we can create relational space for new men and women to step into the church, experience the kind of family they've longed for, and watch that lead them to Jesus. That's John 17 getting played out, by the way. That was a side note. Back to the sermon. There is nothing, there is nothing that you might lose because of your devotion to Christ that Christ doesn't return to you. And so here's the way that I want to land the plane. I want to land the plane with two questions. Two questions. Question one, this text imposes it on us. What do you love most? What do you love most? The answer to that question is your functional savior. By functional savior, this is what I mean. I mean that thing in your life that makes life worth living. The thing that you have to have for life to be worth living. That is your functional savior. Whatever you answer to this question is your savior. If you say marriage, marriage is a thing that I have to have. It's, it's going to become that thing that, that, that you that you put your fist so tightly around and every time you go on a second date or a third date, you're going to smother the people around you. If it's a job, you're going to become a workaholic and you're going to forsake your family. If it's house, you're, going to, you're either going to work yourself to death trying to achieve it or, or you're going to make your spouse feel insecure because they can't provide it. What do you love most? And question two, what are you doing to foster Jesus as your supreme love? Or, maybe wording it this way, what are you doing to cooperate with Jesus to reorder your loves? What are you doing? There's a lot of things we could do, but in light of the context, I want to give you three. I want to give you three uh, things in light of the context of our passage. It's not all there is, but but here's three things. One, let the church be redefined from an event with moral people to a broken but redeemed family. Let the church become a people that you're willing to open yourself up to, live life with, and say, this is who I really am. And experience the unconditional love of God, that, that, that unconditional love that comes through the church so that it might be a display of Christ's love for you that might foster your love for him. See the church as a family, not just an event. And listen, I, um, I know that if you're new, like, like hearing um, church as family is probably pretty darn foreign to you, but it's the, it's the way of Jesus found in the scriptures. Second thing, embrace suffering when it comes. Listen, there, there is going to be a day where you get a call or I get a call. That, like, it's coming for us. Suffering is coming. And suffering has a way uh, of making what is secondary in your life secondary, but you've got to embrace the suffering to get there. Like you, you can have one of two responses when it comes. You, you can either have the, this is completely unfair, I don't deserve this, I did X, I did Y, I did Z, God, what are you doing with my life? This is not fair. And if that's your response, what's going to happen is you're going to take your functional Savior and you're going to grab hold of it. Whatever it is, you're going to wrap your arms around it. If you wrap your arms around your functional savior, you will never feel the presence of God wrapping his arms around you in your suffering. 
Embrace suffering when it comes. And then third, courageously talk about Jesus with those whom he has already divided you. Whether it's family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, courageously talk about Jesus with those whom he has already divided you. And watch that fan the flame of your love for him. Because the question of what do you love most, having the answer to that be Jesus, is what it means to be a disciple of his. And what do you love most is also the most important question you will ever ask. It is the defining question of your life. So what will be yours? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we can look at Jesus and we can see your uh, unending and overwhelming love for us that you would send your son to do what your son did. May that grace, may your love just blanket us this morning. And may it help reorder our loves where the order of our loves would become vertical first, horizontal second, and would that lead to healing of broken horizontal relationships. And for those um, who, uh, uh, for those who uh, the thought of vertical love and vertical peace between us and God is just completely foreign, I pray that they would know it doesn't have to be. And it's on the table and available right now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.